Welcome everyone. This is the first podcast of 2016. Uh, this is Carlos. I'm here with good friend Jeff Lynn, uh, the founder of Cedars crowdfunding platform. And we're going to learn everything about crowdfunding, crowdfunding platforms in a second. But we like to start as usual with the founder's backgrounds. Uh, in this case, Jeff has a background in law and we'll learn a little bit more about kind of where that came from. But he studied in the States. Um, he did his undergrad uh, in politics and economics, and shortly thereafter uh, is when he went down this path of, of law. Um, can you tell us a little bit, Jeff, about kind of your early days in sort of college post-UVA, um, post perhaps, uh, about kind of what it was like to, to, de to deal with the, the legal aspects of, of a business and what parts of it maybe were the initial components that drew you to creating Cedars, you know, down the road? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Carlos, a big, uh, big thanks for, for, for having me on. Um, so uh, I always was and continue to be really interested in, in law as an intellectual kind of uh, matter. I think it's a way of thinking and, uh, a, you know, a set of issues that, that businesses and individuals face that I find fascinating. And I always kind of knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Didn't really know what that really meant. I had no idea what a corporate lawyer was until I became one, but that was kind of the, the route that I wanted to get in. And, you know, it was really fascinating. You know, I was, I, what, what I did mostly sort of merchant acquisitions and other kinds of deal law. And thinking about how you go about structuring a deal, how you go about risk allocation, all the sorts of things like that, um, it's just a really, really interesting exercise. Uh, the disadvantage to it, though, is you never really feel like you're part of the kind of core. You know, the, 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 the principles behind the deal, and to some degree, their financial advisors are the ones who are actually there sort of creating the value. And then you're just a service provider. And I didn't particularly want to spend my whole career doing that. Um, I wanted to do something where I was a principal. I wanted to do something where I got to be actually part of the show rather than kind of the sideshow. Um, the other kind of aspect of the and, and lesson I drew from learning for, from practicing law was, you know, I was representing very, very, very big banks and companies and others taking over other very, very big banks and companies and others. Um, and none of it seemed very sort of value additive. You know, there was a lot of inertia and a lot of bureaucracy that went into these organizations. You know, I'm not one of the bank bashers. It's not that I think these are terrible places. It just didn't seem much room for growth. And I started, and this is going back 2004, 2005, 2006, you know, as we, as we came out of the, the, the dot-com bubble and we're just having the first kind of resurgence of the startup world. And I was seeing friends who had no money and no resources behind them, but they were just creating amazing things. I started to think a lot about, you know, value creation and, and how, you know, how do I want to spend my life and where, you know, where can one build capital? Um, and I'm like, you know, I want to be part of organizations that kind of go, you know, before Peter Thiel talked about zero to one, but they kind of go from, from absolutely nothing to something. Um, and so that was really what kind of motivated me. And I knew I wanted to, I knew I wanted to, to, to or decide I wanted to leave law and do something on the ground. I didn't know what. Um, but I knew I wanted to be part of that ecosystem for my own sake and also because I, I just thought that there was value there. I thought there was, there was money to be made. Like you know, going out west in the 1850s to you know find gold. I just thought that there this was a place that was exciting to be. So I went off to do you know I decided I was going to pull a plug. Um, I was done done practicing law. Went off to do an MBA, and it was while I was there that I met my uh, uh, co-founder, and we started talking about Cedars, and it was just exactly what I wanted to be trying to do. So what's interesting is you practiced. Uh 
law in, in both the East Coast of the U.S. and in, in Europe. And you mentioned that you went to, to do your MBA. And of course, now we all know that Cedars is based in London. But one of the things that sometimes people ask is why, let's say, Europe versus starting something in the U.S., being that you're a U.S. native yeah. and considering that a lot of the, the scene is really American yeah, when it comes to, to venture. So there were really two reasons. I mean, we, you know, so I, I did my MBA um, at Oxford, but you know, here I was, I was an American up at Oxford. My co-founder, Carlos Silva, is Portuguese, and he was there too. And we were in a position at a time in our lives when we were pretty flexible. We kind of could have gone any number of places um, to start. And we kind of looked at the world and decided that actually the UK initially, and then Europe after that, was where we wanted to be. Um, for two reasons. You know, one was a boring kind of regulatory reason, which was that you know, financial regulation is significantly more advanced in most of Europe than it is in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is sort of burdened slightly by this 1930s vintage securities law system, and it hasn't adapted very well to um, the Internet age. And when I talk about how I like law, like these are the kinds of issues I find really interesting. But as a practical person with my business, you know, business hat on, um, I want to be where there's a regulatory environment that one can work with. And financial services is a highly regulated space. Um, so that was one component. And look, I think the emergence, the great fintech kind of revolution we're seeing in London, you know, across so many different verticals is is just, you know, you know, is, is all, you know, or partially a component of regulation. But the other and, and maybe more interesting component to it is I felt that the trend line in Europe, and continue to feel that the trend line in Europe is much more exciting than the US. The US has a more mature startup ecosystem, but that also means it's more set in its ways, and ways of going about funding, and ways of going about doing a lot of things are pretty well established, haven't evolved massively um, through the years, and you know maybe don't need to. I mean, maybe it sort of works okay in the US. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for innovation, but you know, it's, it's a much more steady state environment. What I saw happening in Europe was the very, very beginnings of an immensely exciting ecosystem. And I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying this, you know, for your sake, but, you know, there were a couple of, of key points. One was the emergence of Seed Camp a couple of years before we started that just said, hey, wait, we're starting to get things here and starting to see an approach that is a lot more like what has made Silicon Valley in the U.S. great. And if this can continue, all, all indications are that it should, there's going to be a really huge opportunity here in the next 5, 10, 15 years. And we have a chance sort of to get in on the, on the ground floor and be part of this ecosystem as it grows and as it emerges. Um, and I think that's very exciting. I think being part of whatever business you're in, being part of an environment as it's on its way up rather than trying to come in once it's achieved maturity um, is a great opportunity. So that was a big part of why we chose to be here too. All right. Well, I mean, those are very valid reasons. And maybe if we fast forward to today, what would you say that the current state of, of crowdfunding is? I mean, has it has it is it established now? Would you say it's established, or, or is there still room for establishment? I you know I think it is still we're still in very early days of it. Um, you know, it's it's it, it, it's very interesting because at one end, you know, you can look back, we can look back over the last few years and see how we've gone from. One of these things that many people thought was nuts, you know, we used to get old questions all the time about well, why would any startup come to crowdfunding, you know, aren't you just going to get the businesses that couldn't raise money elsewhere, etc. You know, to a point where we are the first port of call for loads of businesses, loads of businesses are coming to us and combining equity crowdfunding 
with angel and VC and other types of finance. And it's, it's become a much, much more mainstream kind of thing conceptually. Um, but, you know, in terms of raw numbers, we still find that the vast majority of people have never heard of crowdfunding, both entrepreneurs and, um, and investors. Many of those who have uh, is still very new to. Uh, the UK is a little bit further ahead in Europe, in much of Europe, it still remains you know, very much open territory. And our view has always been, and part of the reason we went into this business, is that this is a really huge space. I and mean, this is, you know, this is about not just you know funding the limited group of sort of massive growth tech companies, that's one component of what we do, but it's about funding all sorts of equity fundable small businesses. Um, and you're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of those businesses existing all across Europe. Um, and you know, we're just scratching the surface in terms of reaching them. We're just scratching the surface in terms of reaching investors. Um, and we see a huge amount of growth ahead. So it's it's one of those, you know, it's it's almost in some ways, you know, I think, you know, like a false peak where you you sort of, you know, because you've come up come up so far, you sort of feel like, oh wow, we're actually kind of high. But then you look ahead, and the big mountain is still there. Now, you, you talked a little bit about how you're not just going for the high-tech, fast-growing companies, but also for this sort of long tail of small and medium businesses. Uh, for the people who are considering raising funding via crowdfunding, what, is the, what are the things that you reckon they should consider, uh, what a founder should consider when looking at a platform? Well, I think I think the first thing, I mean, well, I, I, I'll break that into two, sort of, you know, what to consider when thinking about equity crowdfunding to begin with. And, and I should say, just for listeners' reference, you know, Cedars is an equity crowdfunding platform. You know, there are other forms of crowdfunding like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which do rewards crowdfunding. It's, there are similarities between what we do. It's also a fairly different space, um, you know, for a host of reasons. And so what I'm, what I'm talking about is, is primarily the equity side. But I think that, that, you know, first and foremost, if you're going to do equity crowdfunding, you know, the question is, does having that community of investors benefit you or not? You know, it's, we're not just a source of money. And actually, if you just want money, there may be, be some, some easier sources available to you, depending on your type of business. But what we really bring is the combination of capital with hundreds of people that can include your friends and family and acquaintances, all the way up to you know a whole range of professionals from across a whole bunch of sectors, all of whom are there to support your business and provide value as you grow. And if you're the sort of business where that's helpful, and if you're the sort of team or manager where you think like having this big network around you is useful, um, uh, then equity crowdfunding can be amazing for you. Um, if you're not, I mean, if you really just want to be left to get on with it and to do your thing, and you don't think a network is helpful, um, and you don't have, think that connectivity is helpful, I'm not even sure everybody crowdfunding is a great group for you. Now, I, you know, I, that's a slightly loaded answer because I, I, I tend to think that you know there are very few businesses out there, maybe some very you know a narrow enterprise-focused place, but you know very few businesses out there where having that networking community isn't useful. But that is still kind of a threshold question. But I mean, just to give more context to that, would would a company raising five million or raising fifty thousand, what which would be more well, appropriate in, in addition to some of these elements? Yeah. So in terms of yeah, it's, a, it's a really good good, good point, Ross. Uh, in terms of kind of size and stage, you know, we do deals in the equity crowdfunding space. You know, does deals all the way up anywhere from ten, twenty, thirty thousand pounds, all the way up to about four or five million. I mean, that's kind of the range that we're in. 
the sweet spot seems to be the kind of 250 to a million range. So businesses that have raised a bit of seed or pre-seed money, have gotten some, some initial traction, but are still at kind of a pre-venture level. Um, although I, I'm a big believer that even the pre-seed stuff does very well in crowdfunding. And a bigger business, particularly one with um, a good community already around it, like a, a big customer base, you know, raising into the millions can do very well. So I think that it's that sort of range that you're looking at in terms of size. That may change over time. When we started out, we only did deals. We, we restricted ourselves to deals under, under 150,000 pounds. Now we do much bigger ones, and who knows how big that market, you know, deal size gets someday. I think in terms of sector, one of the things we always say is it's not, there's no one sector, it's not just tech or just retail or whatever that does well, but it is stuff that people can understand. You know, again, it's, you know, we do lots of enterprise plays, but if you're doing something that's so complicated that the average ordinary professional, the partner at PwC or the MD at Deutsche Bank or whoever else is browsing the platform isn't going to be able to understand it, that's going to be a, a bit of a challenge for you. Um, and then I think that the, you know, the, I mean, you know, the final element, as I say, is, is just around do you, do you see this as, as an opportunity to build a community and to do some, some marketing alongside funding? So that's you, the, you touched something there, which I'm, I'm going to invent a word here because I don't even know if it exists, the understandability of a business, yeah. right? And when, when, um, when a founder is considering um, going through a crowdfunding platform, to some extent, he's catering or she's catering to uh, a group of individuals who are going to be attracted to the deal. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the things that are attractive for that group of individuals is going to be different, maybe not, but could be very different from the way an institutional investor mm -hmm. might be looking at something because of their time constraints and their returns on expectations yeah. of capital from limited partners. What is the pattern that you've recognized of what your clients on the, on the sort of investing side are looking for in business other than understandability? I mean, it, so understand, I like the word understandability, I'll, I'll co-op that. Um, <laughs> but the truth is that it, 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 part of having a broad-based platform like Cedars is that it, you know, our investors are looking for the full range. I mean, we have investors who, notwithstanding their individuals, are really approaching it with the exact same mindset that a VC does. You know, the, the one deal pays back the funds, so to speak, and same kinds of time horizons, same kinds of, 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 of mentality. We also have investors on the other end of the spectrum who are really interested in businesses that are going to be able to hit profitability pretty soon, are going to be able to tick over nicely, grow, and a two or a three X return would be a fantastic result, but you know, they really don't expect to have too many failures or hope not to have too many failures. And then we have everything in between. And I think that part of the elegance of, 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 of an open platform, a broad platform like ours, but also you know, potentially a challenge is that different. You're going to have different investors who want different things. And I suppose it's no. I mean, I suppose the VC world's not massively different in the sense that different investors will have different theses and different areas of interest. But the, there's probably more variability in return expectations and time horizons across our investor base than there would be in, say, the institutional world. So if, if I take that and I'm listening to it from the founder's point of view, one anxiety that would raise would be, okay, I have this mix of people with different motivations on my cap table. How does that affect my ability to sort of manage my board and manage my my investor relationships if one guy is like pinging me every five seconds or not? Or is that not even relevant in the way that you structure deals? Well, so, so that kind of gets into the second part of your question about kind of how do you choose between between platforms. And one of the things we've spoken about a lot with Cedars and really leaned into and believe is really important um, is what we call our nominee structure. And there are variations of this. Um, that you see elsewhere at special purpose vehicles and things. But the, the basic idea is that we aggregate 
all, all of the investors into one single legal entity, and that legal entity is the sole shareholder. And they cast votes, they grant consents, etc. So from, from, a, from a legal and administrative perspective, when you use Cedars, and this isn't true for all platforms, different platforms take different approaches, but when, when you use Cedars, you are just facing you know, this one legal entity as if it was kind of a seed fund, and all the underlying investors for those purposes, at least, are kind of like all the LPs that sit behind venture capital fund in the sense that you're not actually interacting with them officially. Now, you do have loads of soft interaction with them, and they'll send emails, and they'll ask you questions. And the reality is that part of building a community and part of having lots of people around you is you're going to get a bunch of emails. Um, our investors, we find, are pretty good. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not, everyone has realistic expectations. And if you best invest 500 pounds or 1,000 pounds, you're not expecting masses of management's time by any means. But it will have a level of emails that come in. And I think one of the things that we see is that, you know, an interesting correlation, I don't think there's a causation here, but an interesting correlation between, you know, with who are really good entrepreneurs and who are building really good businesses are the people who are actually pretty good at handling that and really engage well with that. And I think that one of the things good entrepreneurs learn to do is handle large groups of supporters and people with different views and, and do it well. So I think that there is that soft interaction that comes from having lots of investors, but I think that that's just you know a, a byproduct of having a broad community. Those are the same people who, who can help you build significantly. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, our nominee structure and just the idea of having everybody aggregated in one place means that when you're actually making decisions, when you're actually thinking about future rounds or M&A transactions or whatever is critical to the business, you're not having to deal with the divergence of views that would come from having hundreds of individual registered shareholders in your cap table. Yeah, and because of the structure, you touched upon this earlier, it's easier for the round to blend with rounds that are being led by somebody else potentially. Can, can you give maybe the founders that are listening to this a kind of view of what's the evolution of crowdfunding as a uh, amplifier, if you will, of a seed round that they might be raising with a, leading, a traditional lead investor yeah. maybe in conjunction with a crowdfunding raise or inversely, like the crowdfunding raise is the lead investor yeah. and then you have um, individuals who benefit from being on the cap table directly for various reasons. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We, we, we see all different types. I mean, I think when we first started you know, all different kind of structures and, and, and sequences. When we first started out, I think we thought it was a much more linear thing. You know, you raise some money for crowdfunding and then you go on and do sort of, you know, angel institutional money. And part, again, part of the nominee idea and part of the aggregation was always about making that as easy as possible so that when you did go to that big VC down the road and they were looking at your cap table, you just looked effectively like a seed fund and, and, they, and, and it was, or a pre-seed fund and it was that easy. In reality, it has gone every which way. You know, in reality, we have people who are doing institutional deals and come to us for a bit of a top-up or a chance to include some smaller investors. We love, you know, those are great deals. We're basically signing on to the same terms as the VCs are there. It's not, you know, a mass, you know, we're, 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 not, we're, we're doing things in a pretty sort of simple and lean way, but it allows people to get lots of folks into the deal. Conversely, we have plenty of deals where you know, it starts out as a crowd round, but then some big angels or institutions come along and join. And we always allow, you know, the company is happy with it and, and the investor wants it and they want to hold their shares directly outside of our nominee structure, always welcome to do so. So we have that happen with, with, with a good bit of frequency. 
can see in any game video you see on our platform or any of the ones that are near and closing, you may, you'll probably see one or two sort of bigger ticket investors at the top of the list who are um, doing it that way. We do see the sequence of you raise a bit through us and then you raise a bit through institutional or angel money later. We see people who already raise some institutional and then come to us. You know, and a lot of it just depends on the particular needs of the business at the time, the particular communities they've built, um, uh, and the particular preferences of management. And I think our goal and our job, and you know, what we need to do right, is not try to prejudice that, not try to necessarily say this is the way that makes the most sense, but instead is to provide a flexible enough offering that whatever happens to make sense for the business, we can accommodate. Um, uh, uh, and make easy. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that. Mm. One of the things that um, maybe as a consequence of having all this flexibility is timings. Yeah. Is, does it slip into a long process? How much time should a founder allocate towards either raising just with you guys yep. or as soon as you start having potentially external investors who are uh, following on to the round and you start corporate? How much time should should be allocated to this. So I'll start with the easy part of that, or an easy answer to that question, and then and then I'll I'll, I'll give the slightly more complex detail. You know, the easy bit is to say that one thing, again, a sort of byproduct of what we built that I don't think we anticipated at first, but it's coming very useful, um, is that that you know we find that when people are doing rounds through us and also raising money elsewhere, the fact that they got around with us creates a level of urgency with the angels and the VCs. So. You know, every founder has the experience of having loads of, you know, every, every, even every successful founder has the experience of having loads of interested, bigger ticket in individual investors or institutions who are kind of circling, but all everybody's waiting for somebody else to make the first move, etc. And, you know, when you have a round that says, look, it's going to expire on this day, we need to get momentum, you're in or you're out, um, that actually tends to catalyze action a lot. So, you know, we that's, that's been a pretty cool, I think, and, and useful but to the specific question of how long does it take, um, it, it, it really is very variable. I mean, our, our high level sort of, you, know, you had to put a number on it, you know, a good, well-run campaign where everybody's kind of got all their, their guns aligned and all is, is two to three months and then it can go, go longer. And, and that sort of has three components. There's the onboarding bit, there's the creating a campaign, going through our due diligence process. You know, one of the things that we do is make sure that Everything you're saying in your campaign is is fair, clear, and not misleading, um, which is important for us for our responsibility. But it's good it's good for the founder too because it means that you know there's no no prospect of having said something you know out there uh, that that you know was just sort of casually said but actually doesn't stack up to you know um, uh, uh, if somebody scrutinized it. Um, so there's that process. There's then the actual process of the campaign being live and getting investors, and then there's the final sort of closing and administrative process. Um, the first two of those are kind of within the founder, sorry, the first and the third of those are within the founders and our control. And you know, if you submit a campaign and you're willing to sort of get yourself together and get, get the piece of evidence that we need together and go through that diligence process, that can be a sort of two-week process. Um, and likewise, on the back end, if, if you know, if the, the final diligence and structure and stuff is relatively straightforward, that can be kind of a two-week process. Um, how long it then actually takes to raise the money is the big variable. And 
we have campaign, I think the average is about four weeks. You know, successful campaigns hit their targets within, on average, about four weeks, but there is a, a meaningful standard deviation there. There's also overfunding, you know, many businesses hit their targets, but then want to stay open longer and keep topping up. And it can always stretch out a little bit further there. But I think that the, the kind of generic thing we would say is, you know, if you're willing to kind of focus on it, and, and we, you know, make no bones about the fact that it does take some work. We, we, you know, we try to make the process straightforward, but that doesn't mean it's a lazy process. It does does require a level of engagement. Um, you know, a two to three month time horizon uh, is 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 relatively realistic. Okay, but I mean, the, I think that what I took from that is that even if somebody were looking at various platforms, and some platforms were very immediate, like literally, you could put the campaign up overnight that what they're losing is a lot of the work that you do in preparing the investor base for the materials that they're going to have to review in addition to preparing the founder um, is so that it's it's a successful campaign. So you're, you're planning around success and legitimacy rather than urgency in, in terms of like overnight. Or kind of it, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that, you know, for the number one priority, you know, for any founder and for us for that matter is that the is that the campaign succeeds and if, if you know and, and, and ideally we can do everything quickly and successfully but if it takes a little more time to kind of meet our standards to prepare the campaign to put it in the best position you know to get out to investors I think that we would prioritize that over a quick and dirty hey get it up and see what happens if that minimizes success yes so with that in mind what are the mistakes that you see founders do and I'm not saying just specifically to within Cedars but just Whenever you see founders going down the process of crowdfunding, what is the biggest sort of assumption or mistake that you see happen over and over and over again? I think the, the number one mistake we see is a, an assumption that crowdfunding is just about posting a listing and letting people throw money at it. You know, there's, and, and there's a reason for this, you know, all the great crowdfunding campaigns, both in the equity world and the rewards world, they kind of make it look easy. You know, the Pebble watches and the Oculus rifts in, 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 in places like um, on places like Kickstarter or campaigns like like, like Chapel Down or, or, or Assets Capital or some of the bigger ones that we've done on Cedars. You know, from, the, from a distance, it looks like, hey, they just posted this and all these people put money in them. And what everyone doesn't see is a lot of hard work goes into it behind the scenes. Um, and it is a marketing effort, it's a community outreach effort, it's an ongoing engagement effort. Um, and it's very easy, I think, to, to, to forget that. Um, and part of the real sort of challenge is that, you know, we have a huge base of investors looking at the platform every day. But the one thing I can guarantee is that they will not invest in a 0% or 1% funded deal. It's just like nobody goes into an empty bar. You know, you, you, you want, you know, what our kind of independent investors want is to see that the companies have gotten some momentum. And that doesn't just mean having one person write a big check. It means getting you know, a good number of friends and family and community members behind it, putting in bits and pieces, getting that progress bar to go up. Um, and that's when sort of independent investors start to notice. So the successful entrepreneurs, and we, you know, this is a very clear statement. We say, we say to people, you know, successful entrepreneurs are people who expect and who think of, of crowdfunding, think of Cedars as a platform where it's a tool for them to go out and raise their money. And if they think of it that way, they're going to go out and raise money from some of their community, but a huge portion of our community is likely to come in too. Unsuccessful founders and the ones who don't, don't make it to the target are the ones who see us as purely a liquidity pool and see the opportunity as simply being about posting and letting money come in. Then what winds up happening is nobody comes in. 
um, and the round is successful. So that is the number one thing that I think um, uh, uh, trips up founders. And I think that you know if, if if everyone understood and engaged well enough and was willing to put in the sort of time and energy and thought that goes into you know rallying your community behind you, um, you know the failure rates you would see in terms of hitting targets would be significantly lower. That's probably the biggest cause of some of not hitting a target. Mm. Another, another area that might be um, of increasing success or failure is uh, finding an interested group of investors depending on their vertical interests. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've seen pop up more and more are verticalized crowdfunding platforms, some that specialize in hardware, some that specialize in retail. And you know, you run, you run the risk in some ways of having um, less liquidity yep. by having less investors in that pool. But at the flip side to the network discussion you were talking about earlier, you have people who are emailing you with far more relevant introductions yeah. and far more relevant stuff. Where, where do you see the evolution of, of this space? Do you think it'll be a, a bunch of, I mean, will, will the future of Cedars be multiple Cedars marketplaces, each with different verticals, or will or the landscape be that, or will it be more of a general platform where more people come and invest? You know, it's, it's a fantastic question, and I'll, I'll sort of preface my answer by saying that there, is some, there are some things in this space that I feel very strongly about. I think aggregation of investors through things like our nominee structure is really important and fundamental. I think shareholder agreements and protection. I mean, there are certain things that, 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 that I believe very strongly um, my views on this one are not nearly as strongly held. I have my predictions and thoughts, but um, I'm the first to say that they, they could turn out to be wrong. Um, with that kind of caveat, I do not think that the long-term solution is going to be multiple vertical marketplaces because fundamentally what you're doing is splitting pools of liquidity. And even though, um, you know, as I say, this is not about just being a liquidity pool, part that is part of what we are, part of the value we bring is our scale, is the, you know, the number of people we have looking at deals and, you know, you gain some expertise by segmenting through verticals, um, but then you, you, you lose so much in terms of critical mass that my, my view is that, 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 that that's going to be very hard. Um, I do think, without sort of giving away anything too secret, um, you know, I think a, a challenge and an opportunity for a platform like ours is to try to get the best of both worlds, is to try to segment investors to a degree to serve certain investors or, or, or signpost to certain investors the kinds of deals they're most likely to be interested in, while still having the whole base of investors and accessing the whole base of deals. And if we can do that, we might be able to get a little bit of a, a, you know, a little bit of the advantages of a verticalized platform while still having a single unified pool of liquidity. Um, uh, if that's not an easy thing to do, if you do it wrong and you segment, you know, you don't segment the way that, that, that makes sense, then you then, then suddenly you're kind of the worst of both worlds. Um, so it's not, it's not a trivial way of doing things, but I think that that may be the kind of intermediate solution. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly the prediction, that's certainly the, 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 the view we're taking, but you know, whether there could be some success in certain niches, possible. And I think the more specialized the niche, the more likely that it is to happen. I'm less, you know, I less see, say, a, retail, a specialized retail platform where retail is a space that a lot of people can wrap their minds around mm -hmm. than I do a biotech platform. Yeah. You know? to, to create a new term, the understandability factor. Understandability factor. The understandability like factor. I, we got two two new fantastic terms of art out yeah. of this. <laughs> All right, cool. So, a question that I've always wondered about, 
um, is the nature of follow-on investments yeah. when, when somebody's received money from crowdfunding. So whereby the founder, either as part of a sole crowdfunded round or as part of a blended equity plus crowdfunded round, raised money for, let's say, a seed round, Series A round comes by, it's not clear who's going to be the lead investor, yeah. whether the lead investor is going to come from the internal investor base or from an external in uh, new investor base. What is, what is crowdfunding platform's usual policy on, on follow-on investments? So I don't know that there is a usual policy across platforms. Certainly for us, um, you know, it, it, and, and, and the way we do things at Cedars, um, it, it's, it's you know, keep, keeping with the, the, the line of flexibility. It is, you know, we will try to accommodate whatever works best for um, uh, the business. And we have had plenty of times where the follow-on round is a, another crowdfunding round. And that's particularly useful and true in the kind of seed, you know, moving from a kind of pre-seed to seed state. You know, one of the things we've talked about, and this has never been a core part of the vision, but it's an interesting idea, is, you know, trying to move to a situation where, you know, companies really do much more in the way of drip feeding funding. I mean, really 20, 30, 40,000 pounds a time, get to a milestone, do the next bit, do the next bit. Disadvantages are constant, sort of constantly outraising money, advantages that you can push valuation as well. And so if people want to do that, you know, we're very happy uh, for them to do so. Um, alternatively, if they come with one or more external investors, um, you know, we do try to, what, what we require them to give, um, you know, to honor preemption rights so that their existing investors can, can, can follow on to a little bit. Most tend to, most tend to open it up more broadly to their existing investors and if they, you know, handed other new investors and to do a, a little bit of a crowd uh, um, uh, uh, component as well. And, 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 you know, we're sort of ambivalent um, behind that. I think the one thing that you don't necessarily see and, and probably shouldn't see in all honesty is you know, a, you know a, a, a truly led round, you know, there are club rounds where you just have lots of different people investing and sort of on, on a mutually agreed set of terms, but a traditional VC-led round, you know, a crowdfunding platform is unlikely to be the lead in that sort of round because, you know, we very consciously are not doing the sort of, the, the types of, of commercial due diligence that a lead investor sort of does. And so, you know, we're, we're there to provide both capital and community, we're there to fit into the broader round, um, but I don't think that you're going to see the day where, um, you know, it's Cedars led the round and, you know, name your venture capital firm followed. Um, that's probably the one sort of combination or sequence that is not, yeah, not part of what we do. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate your time and answering all the questions, and I'm sure the founders will get a lot out of it. So, until next time, guys. Bye. Many thanks. Bye.